Good evening. President Biden announces his nomination for the Supreme Court seat being vacated by Justice Breyer. As promised, if approved, she'll be the first black woman named to the post. Russian troops close in on Ukraine's capital as the United States claims Russia is experiencing setbacks. But the Ukrainian and Russian governments say they're in talks. We hear from a former top military official. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, February 25th, 2022. President Joe Biden selected Ketanji Brown-Jackson as the first black woman U.S. Supreme Court nominee today, thrusting her into the middle of America's struggle over race. Today, I'm pleased to introduce to the American people a candidate who continues in this great tradition. Judge Jackson grew up in Miami, Florida. And by the way, the mayor of Miami, Republican, endorsed you. I thought that was interesting. Her parents grew up with segregation, but never gave up hope that their children would enjoy the true promise of America. And I've always had a deep respect for the Supreme Court and judiciary as a co-equal branch of the government. I mean it. The court is equally as important as the presidency or the Congress. It's co-equal. So today, I'm pleased to nominate Judge Jackson, who will bring extraordinary qualifications, deep experience and intellect, and a rigorous judicial record to the court. Judge Jackson deserves to be confirmed as the next Justice of the Supreme Court. I've met with the chairman and ranking members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Dick Durbin, Senator Chuck Grassley, and my hope is that they will move promptly, and I know they'll move fairly. Judge Jackson, congratulations. And that is the president speaking earlier today of the 115 people who have ever served on America's top judicial body. All but three have been white. Only two have been black. And both of those were men. Biden has made the case for naming a black woman as long overdue, leading Republicans to accuse him of discrimination for not considering men or any non-black woman for the job. Biden chose Jackson over two other leading candidates, Leandra Kruger, who serves on the California Supreme Court, and Michelle Childs, a South Carolina-based federal judge. Brown-Jackson spoke as well today. She says only in America could a person of humble origins rise so far. I many blessings, and indeed, the very first is the fact that I was born in this great country. The United States of America is the greatest beacon of hope and democracy the world has ever known. You may have read that I have one uncle who got caught up in the drug trade and received a life sentence. That is true. But law enforcement also runs in my family. In addition to my brother, I had two uncles who served decades as police officers, one of whom became the police chief in my hometown of Miami, Florida. As it happens, I share a birthday with the first black woman ever to be appointed as a federal judge, the Honorable Constance Baker Motley. We were born exactly 49 years to the day apart. Today, I proudly stand on Judge Motley's shoulders, sharing not only her birthday, but also her steadfast and courageous commitment to equal justice under law. Katanji Brown-Jackson and Senator Chuck Schumer says he'll move the Senate hearings and get her nominated quickly. This historic nomination of Judge Jackson is an important step towards ensuring that the Supreme Court reflects the nation as a whole. Once the president sends Judge Jackson's nomination to the Senate, 
Senate Democrats will work to ensure a fair, timely, and expeditious process, fair to the nominee, fair to the Senate, and fair to the American public. Racial tensions have simmered in the United States in recent years, particularly in light of incidents such as the 2020 murder of George Floyd, a black man by white Minneapolis police officer, and Donald Trump's 2017 presidency when critics accused him of pursuing policies built around white grievance. Today, for example, marks 10 years since Trayvon Martin, a young black man out to buy snacks, was shot to death in Florida by a self-appointed neighborhood watchman. The host of WBAI's Law of the Land, heard Tuesday mornings at 9, is Gloria Brown Marshall. She says, despite the haters, Ketanji Brown-Jackson is welcomed by most black Americans, especially since the current black member of the court, Clarence Thomas, is a leading right-winger whose wife has been implemented in the January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is an excellent choice. She has the background, the criteria is met in every way, shape, or form, and she is politically connected, having her husband be um, an in-law to um, Paul Ryan, the former Speaker of the House, and a conservative. So I think of all the candidates, and they all had great bona fides, that she is the one who not only is equipped um, intellectually, but also um, politically to get through the hearing. Now, Republicans say that she is an extreme leftist. Republicans can say a lot. Because she was at one time a public defender to better understand what the criminal justice does to people, makes her a better judge. She has her experience of having had a relative who was incarcerated, and she assisted that relative in, you know, in, his, in the way she could in helping him get a pardon. It's important for us to know that whoever the person is, even before they were put forward, the Republicans had already started to denounce them as an affirmative action hire, as someone who must be unqualified. It's going to be mudslinging from their side. And we know that the candidates vetted for Donald Trump during his presidency had already been people who had sworn to overturn abortion rights had already been people sworn to be loyal to Donald Trump and the Republican Party. So um, we have to look at from whose mouths are we taking this criticism. Even if she's affirmed, still a supermajority of conservatives on the Supreme Court. How could she change the court? Something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg said when she was justice on the court writing dissents, she said she writes her dissents knowing that one day they'll be the majority opinion. Yes, the numbers are against a liberal construct of the Constitution and social justice, voting rights and other issues like that. But you play a game of time and she's young enough to be on the court, long enough to outweigh some of their decisions, maybe be persuasive where she can be. I know that going to be three women now, if she does rise to the highest court, who will be in the dissent. Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan will be along with Justice Brown Jackson. And they have to buy their time. It's a lifetime appointment. They'll have time to make the changes they need to make, and they'll know when to make them. Clarence Thomas, who is very conservative, whose wife is now being investigated as the possible brains behind the January 6th invasion of the Capitol. And then on the other side, we have a black woman considering what happened with Anita Hill. Virginia or Jenny Thomas was a very high up operative within the Tea Party movement. 
her background is quite evident if all we have to do is read about it, that she has been the one who they say was put on her Facebook page that the prayers are with the people attacking the Capitol. And this is the wife of Clarence Thomas. We know that Clarence Thomas is now the ultra conservative on the court. Clarence Thomas seems to be doubling down past even where Scalia drew the line on being a conservative. We know that Justice Brown, and I'm saying justice, Brown Jackson is going to have her hands full. I'm told that they're all trying to be civil on the court and have civil relationships. It's a very small club. They have to get along. But we also know that Jenny Thomas is notorious for her jealousy of black women because of the Anita Hill incident. So we'll see how she treats Justice Brown Jackson and how cordial she's going to be, especially given her manipulation, we must say, of Justice Thomas and his deciding to not just be an ultra-conservative, but be an ultra-conservative who wants to undermine voting rights and civil rights and employment rights of people of African descent. Thanks. Anything you'd like to add? We also want to make sure that even though the conservatives are calling the nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson as something that's very leftist, We want to make sure also, as the first black woman on the court, that she's going to have an embracing of her culture. So we want her to be an African-American woman in in full stead. And we'll be looking for her to also take that culture onto the court like Justice Sotomayor did and not leave it behind. Gloria Brown Marshall is host of WBAI's Law of the Land, heard Tuesday mornings at 9. And truckers in the United States are setting off on a massive cross-country drive, cross drive towards Washington, D.C. to protest against coronavirus restrictions. Organizers of the so-called People's Convoy say they want to jumpstart the economy and reopen the country. In a statement, truckers say they'll approach the Beltway, which encircles the U.S. Capitol, on March 5th, but will not be going into D.C. proper. Separate truck convoys have been planned through online forums with names like the People's Convoy and the American Truckers Freedom Fund, all with different starting points, departure dates and routes. Some are scheduled to arrive in time for President Joe Biden's State of the Union address on March 1st, though others may arrive afterwards. The convoys follow the recent Canadian truckers protests, which shut down the busiest U.S.-Canada border crossing and besieged the streets of the capital, Ottawa, for weeks to protest against government pandemic restrictions. The multiple blockades were broken up by police last week with more than 100 arrests. One trucker in the United States says he's doing it to defend American freedoms. You know, it's important to stand up for freedom, and uh, some people are too afraid to do it. I'm not too afraid to do it. I'm just not too afraid. People got to stand up for your rights. There's basic rights we got to have. We're not going to let nobody take them away. Meanwhile, the Pentagon has approved the deployment of 700 unarmed National Guard personnel to the nation's capital as it prepares for the protests. The Pentagon says the Guard members will not carry firearms unarmed or take part in law enforcement or domestic surveillance activities. A supporter of the truckers' protest, former White House aide under President Trump, Steve Bannon, made a point on his cable news show, meanwhile, that the rule of Russia's president is preferable to the government in Kiev. Ukraine's not even a country. 
it's kind of a concept. It's not even a country. So when you talk about sovereignty and self-determination, it's just a corrupt area where the Clintons have turned into a colony where they can steal money out of. Interesting uh, look into the mindset of America's right wing at this time. Meanwhile, in Europe, where bitter fighting continues between Russian forces and Ukraine's army, the Russian and Ukrainian governments today signal an openness to negotiations, even as authorities in Kyiv urge citizens to help defend the capital from advancing Russian forces in the worst European security crisis in decades. But the news comes as sirens were heard outside, live outside Ukraine's capital city. And sounds of small fire, small arms fire, was also heard. Meanwhile, in Washington, State Department spokesperson Ned Price said Ukraine's forces are putting up a fight, referring to the Ukrainians as heroes. The Kremlin continues to use disinformation, including false reports alleging, again falsely, the widespread surrender of Ukrainian troops. Moscow is resorting to outright lies in an effort to weaken the resolve of Ukraine's military and of its people. We are also witting of reports that the Russian Federation plans to threaten to kill the family members of Ukrainian soldiers if they do not surrender. These tactics are classic intimidation. They are synonymous with the Kremlin. They are unacceptable. We are reminded that many Russians disagree with Putin's brutal and imperialist tactics and policies. The citizens of Russia who are peacefully protesting, including in Putin's own hometown and in dozens of other cities across uh, the Russian Federation, are rejecting his violence against the people of Ukraine. We deeply respect them. We respect their bravery. We respect their heroism. And as Ned Price, the State Department spokesperson, the term hero has been used by Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, to describe the more than 170 Ukrainian soldiers reportedly killed in the fighting. Last night, Zelensky filmed himself with aides on the streets of the capital, vowing to defend Ukraine's independence. And NATO Secretary General John Stoltenberg, meanwhile, announced for the first time ever the deployment of NATO's response force to areas near Ukraine. We are now deploying the NATO response force uh, for the first time um, in a collective defense uh, uh, also, uh, uh, context. And, um, and uh, we speak about thousands of troops. Uh, we speak about air uh, and uh, maritime uh, capabilities. Uh, they uh, are all actually part of uh, the standing uh, naval groups. And while the Pentagon's John Kirby, the spokesperson for the Pentagon, John Kirby, claimed that Ukraine's armed forces are putting up stiff resistance to the Russian military and denying Russia a easy or quick victory. I'm a little loath to get into a blow by blow here from the Pentagon podium uh, on operations that we're not involved in. I would just tell you, broadly speaking, we see clear indications that the Ukrainian armed forces are fighting back and bravely defending their country and we also see indications that there have been measures of success in that regard because it's not apparent to us that the Russians over the last 24 hours have been able to execute their plans as they deemed that they would. But it's a dynamic, fluid situation. 
it wouldn't be responsible for us to, to talk about it in, in a predictive way right now. We'll watch it as, as closely as we can, but they are fighting back, they are fighting for their country, and they're doing so bravely. Are facing setbacks on the battlefield from what you can Our say. understanding is that they have experienced some setbacks, yes. And the U.S. will impose sanctions on Russian President Vladimir Putin. That was announced by the White House today. The Russian leader will become the highest profile target in the effort to impose costs on the Russian economy and Putin's inner circle in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Additional Russian officials are likely to be included once uh, in days to come. The European Union and United Kingdom also announced they would introduce sanctions targeting Putin and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Also today, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the U.S. move to sanction Putin and Lavrov uh, was made in the last 24 hours in coordination with European allies. Following a telephone conversation President Biden held with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and in alignment with the decision by our European allies, the United States will join them in sanctioning President Putin and Foreign Minister Lavrov and members of the Russian national security team. And that is Jen Psaki earlier today. And as uh, reported earlier, uh, there are reports of uh, possible negotiations going on behind the scenes with uh, involving both Russia and Ukraine. But that comes as Russia has vetoed a United Nations Security Council resolution demanding that Moscow stop its attack on Ukraine and with all its troops. Today's vote was 11 to 1 with China, India and United Arab Emirates abstaining. It showed significant but not total opposition to Russia's invasion of its smaller, militarily weaker neighborhood neighbor. The United States and other supporters knew the resolution wouldn't pass, but argued it would highlight Russia's international isolation. The resolution's failure paves the way for backers to call for a swift vote on a similar measure in the United Nations General Assembly. There are no vetoes in the 193-member assembly, and there's no timetable as yet for a potential assembly vote. But uh, – Lavrov, speaking earlier today, did insist that there were negotiations continuing. We've been in a very uh, intense and specific discussions with our American colleagues, with others, uh, NATO, with other NATO members. Uh, we hope that the uh, chance for, uh, for return to the international law, international obligations is still there. And as we uh, take the measures announced by the president uh, to ensure the security of the country and the Russian uh, people, uh, we certainly would always be uh, ready for a dialogue which will bring us back to justice and the principles of the United Nations Charter. And that is the uh, uh, foreign minister of Russia speaking earlier today. The... Uh, uh, former uh, retired U.S. Army Colonel Lawrence Wilkinson served for 32, uh, 32 years in the United States military and uh, rose to the position of uh, chief deputy to uh, uh, Secretary, uh, then Secretary of State Colin Powell. Uh, he spoke with WBAI extensively yesterday, and he said that the U.S. has really the one who is uh, at law at a loss in, in this conflict and he says has backed itself into a corner in dealing with uh, Russia and other countries by uh, d 
determinations that were made for political reasons by uh, former presidents. Uh, he continues to say that why is the U.S. even bothering with Ukraine or even for that matter Taiwan when uh, we have much bigger problems, including the 16,000 nuclear weapons that are controlled by both the United States and Russia. We accuse Putin of doing things that we've been doing for 20 years. The New York Times the other day ran a piece where the journalists talked about how many violations of state sovereignty Putin had made, how many borders he was contemplate crossing or would cross and so forth. What have we been doing for the last 20 years in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya? I mean, we're just getting back what we started. Uh, so that's why it's so hypocritical what we're saying and doing right now. And like I say, it's laughable that we find the only issue we can be bipartisan over is another damn war. Do you think the protests that we're seeing all over Russia and there's been 2000 arrests almost and thousands of people much very unexpected. Do you think that's significant or means anything? I do. I do. Because one of the reasons he's done this and one of the reasons he's been doing these sorts of things all along was not just it's in his strategic interest to do that, in Russia's strategic interest, but because it was popping up him politically. His polls were raised 10 or 12 points every time he did something against the United States because basically the Russian people see the United States as having raped, pillaged, and plundered them. And basically they're accurate. From about 1997 on, they're accurate. Anatoly Chuba, Bob Rubin, and Larry Summers literally ran a fire sale in Moscow and sold off all the old assets from the communist Soviet Union for a, for a fire sale price and made enormous monies off the fees. Harvard's endowment went from about five or six billion to over 19 billion almost overnight. Not for nothing was Larry Summers made president of Harvard. So they've got a lot of problems with us and I don't blame them for having those problems. But at, in, at the end of the day, we're now at a position where I think the Russian people are beginning to realize how much Putin is individually taking them into situations they don't need to be in. Do you think that Ukraine will survive as a country after this? Well, it's going to survive. Uh, like its government, for example, Hitler, not collapse? Or Hitler, Hitler, Hitler put 40 Wehrmacht divisions into the Balkans, Yugoslavia, into that area, and he couldn't control it. And Moscow's going to control it with the few troops that they have. This is not a lot of troops. In fact, it's about the same amount of troops that we put in Iraq. And look what we did in Iraq. And Iraq was a much easier problem, mostly desert, very subject to air power. Ukraine is not desert. It's not very subject to air power. You can use air power, but it's it's not going to be that effective. And if you really go to guerrilla warfare, whoever is the antagonist is going to be beaten royally. It's in his interest to stop, to consolidate the gains that he's made, and then start talking. And I hope what he starts talking about is not just Ukraine, but more important issues like nuclear weapons. We're confronting a situation with nuclear weapons that's so serious right now that we're approaching being, if not already in, a situation like October 1962 when Khrushchev tried to put missiles in Cuba. We have no arms control. We have nuclear weapons bristling all over the world. Now we have them in North Korea. We have them in India. We have them in Pakistan. We have them in Israel. None of those people are in the nonproliferation treaty, even in a meaningful way. And we're just sitting here cavalierly building more nuclear weapons. China's being compelled to build more. China only has two or 300 nuclear weapons. We have 8,000. Russia has 8,000. 
China's making a decision to build thousands more because of what we've done and what Russia's done. We need to get a handle on this. And you don't get a handle on this much bigger existential problem of nuclear weapons by focusing on something as penny handy as Ukraine. Why are we focusing? President Obama in the Roosevelt room sitting across from me with John Kerry on his left when he was Secretary of State looked at me and he said, there's a bias in this down towards war. Let me say that again. This is a direct quote from the President of the United States in the seventh year of two administrations. There's a bias in this down toward war. Then the President spent the next 30 minutes telling me he didn't know what to do about it. There is a bias toward war in Washington. There's a bias toward war in Moscow because of Putin, but in Washington, it's because of the military-industrial complex. It's because so many people from the Congress, particularly the two armed services committees, to the complex itself, Lockheed, Grumman, Boeing, Raytheon, United Technologies, I could go on and on, make such a lot of money. Halliburton in Iraq and Afghanistan made $44 billion. When you make that much money off war, you're going to have more war. Retired U.S. Army Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, he served 32 years in the military and was chief deputy to Secretary of State Colin Powell. And finally, LGBTQ New Yorkers rallied outside City Hall yesterday, calling again for Mayor Eric Adams to rescind appointees to his administration with a long history of homophobic and transphobic stances and statements. The rally followed several days of criticism from advocates and elected allies calling for Adams to walk back the hirings of former council member Fernando Cabrera who will serve as senior advisor in the mayor's office of faith-based and community partnership, and of Eric Salgado, who will serve as the mayor's commissioner, uh, as the assistant commissioner of the mayor's office of immigrant affairs. Uh, at least one of those men uh, went to went so far as to travel to uh, the African nation of Uganda to uh, support and voice support for a law that makes it a criminal offense to be gay, lesbian, or transgender. Uh, today, the mayor said he's willing to meet with the LGBTQ community to discuss their problems. LGBTQ plus advocate throughout my entire career, I know no one is going to come in my administration and do anything that's harmful for any New Yorker. And we need to allow people to evolve from where they are. That is, that is what, what has been my life story, and I'm going to continue to do that. And I will meet with my members of the community. I spoke with many of them. Uh, next week, we're sitting down. We're going to have a conversation, and we're going to evolve as a city to make sure this is a safe place for everyone. As mayor, the uh, mayor, Eric Adams, the council's the city council's LGBTQ caucus criticized Adams hires in a letter a few days ago. Several members of the caucus joined the demonstration outside City Hall yesterday to call again for the removal of the two men. Caucus members Chi Ose, who represents parts of Brooklyn, called the appointments a stinking insult. And that's on the news for Friday, February 25th, 2022. The news is produced Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.